When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Iberian Siesta episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm joined by Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. Formerly the Huffington Post, which was run by the sleep expert Ariana Huffington. I'm joined by Anna Shemansky. Hello. Do you get enough sleep? Uh, not usually. Not usually. You see, I'm be- I'm beginning to put a theme together here. I'm going to talk about how I'm all jet lagged because I just got back from Portugal. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I got up to in Portugal and somehow segue that into a piece about private markets. Uh, we are going to talk about the CEO of McDonald's who had an affair with a subordinate and wound up losing his job as a result and various other people in similar situations. And yes, we are going to talk about Iberian siestas. We're going to talk about sleepy time. And we're going to talk about whether naps make you richer. I think this would be the best world, really, is a world where like people get rich by napping. That's a dream world. Literally. Literally, (laughs) We are also going to have a plus segment about Saudi Aramco. So all of that is coming up in Slate Money. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Let's start with people losing their job for having consensual sex. Yes. Yes. This yes. Is the new thing. This is the hot new thing. 
Most recently, it's the CEO of McDonald's. Yes, this week, um, McDonald's said that Stephen Easterbrook was going to step down because he had had a consensual, they emphasize consensual relationship with an employee at the company, and that violated McDonald's policies, so he was out. This is despite Easterbrook presiding over a big increase in McDonald's stock price over the past five years, I think. Um, and this was, we, we saw something similar at Intel a few, uh, like a year ago. Yeah, I believe it was a year ago, and you'll have to help me pronounce his name. Krasanich? Sure. Why Brian not? Krasanich from Intel also stepped down because he had a consensual relationship with an employee. And one thing I thought of immediately was how can a CEO ever have a truly consensual relationship with an employee? And then I had a, an internal fight with myself, Emily. <laughs> In which I was like, come on, CEOs need to have relationships, too. It's possible you're in the workplace all the time. You might fall in love with someone you work with. Is that so wrong? And then I said, Emily, yes, the CEO simply <laughs> cannot have a consensual relationship wait, wait, with I someone just, else. I, I want this like, Emily dialogue to continue. So where did the Emily, like, did you did you reach some kind of Hegelian synthesis? I uh, Yeah, so... Okay, CEO cannot have a consensual relationship with someone he or she works with. It's not possible because they are the boss of everyone, and there's always going to be that little power dynamic there. And if you have a policy against such things, then you're violating the policy. However, Isn't there do they a... need to be fired for it? Well, okay, I, I... so I have one question first. <laughs> Isn't there a power dynamic in every consensual relationship? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that is another point I made to myself. <laughs> but you should make it now because this is ridiculous. It's just, I was kind of laughing as you were saying that, because when I described my thoughts on it, I was also like, there were like these two parts of me. <laughs> and mine, I more started on the other side where I was like, eh, for consensual, like that seems, but then I do think you're right that if like, if I were running a business, I would just have a very strict policy because, you know, if you have someone who is in charge of people, especially if they're a CEO, then, you know, even if it's not their direct report, like if you're managing the girlfriend or boyfriend of CEO, like, how do you do that, right? It's just too complicated. So you probably do need to just have a so really what's, clean So role. what's the policy yeah. that no one, no one is allowed to what exactly? So I think that what would probably make sense is to say what I, I know a lot of, like, I think financial firms have, which is that almost any relationship between even coworkers, you have to disclose, Okay, And so and I think that would be one thing you could say, Okay, well, at least if it's public and disclosed. Now, once you get into senior management, I think it's reasonable to say you are not allowed to have a relationship. And if you do, then you're not allowed to be senior management anymore. Maybe you don't have to be fired, but you might have to leave. Yes. And I feel like like maybe Easterbrook was there are cases where, you know, a CEO or a leader can behave perfectly ethically in the relationship, despite the power dynamic. They could see they could recognize internally themselves. Oh, this is kind of an, a tricky little thing. And they could do everything they can in their power to make it fair. But then you see abuses of power. And so we're going to talk about David Drummond. Right. But I'm still stuck on like the principle, like if you want to formalize some kind of a rule. And, you know, breaking the rule means you get fired. Then I think that, you know, like what Matt Lauer did was definitely a firing offense. You know, yes. he had sexual relationships and we can, you know, argue the toss. Even if they were consensual, they were still a firing offense. So we don't even need to argue whether they were consensual because, like, either way, like, those relationships were enough to get him fired. But then I'm like, okay, he gets fired. What about, like, Joe and Micah? 
Mm. Right. No, it's it's a good point. And I mean, and this is where I then go back on the other side of where I started, which is that humans are really complicated. And I think, you know, again, from an HR legal perspective, you want to make things really clean and nice. Right. But then I think the problem is you're always going to run into these issues because it's always going to be like, well, but who is this person slightly superior to this person? It's it's never going to be easy. But I think the fact that Me Too is making people have these conversations is ultimately good because I think what hopefully this would do is help at the actual lower levels at McDonald's because to me, that's the real issue, right? You don't want women who are being paid minimum wage and working at McDonald's franchises to have to worry about sexual harassment because they have some fuzzy policy so that the CEO can have relations with them. Or even that brunch manager, yeah. And that's the other thing that's going on here, which is that McDonald's is facing about 50 harassment complaints from line workers um, at the EEOC and in the courts over sexual harassment and discrimination, pretty gross stuff where like the manager of a local McDonald's is doing all the bad stuff. And I guess optically, you can't have the CEO do something. I don't I won't I won't say similar because no one's saying there was right. actual misconduct here, but you can't have the CEO kind of like skirting the line and also defend yourself against these 50 complaints. And I think this maybe then should bring us we can just briefly talk about Google. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Because Google has this really bad history, frankly, of, I mean, if you look from the stories of their early founding, just lots and lots of sexual harassment that has been reported. And then... And lots of having affairs with subordinates. Right. Like, I think both of the co-founders did. Um, Eric Schmidt is notorious for, like, going through a whole string of girlfriends, often, like, simultaneously and turning up to, you know, like, we, the whole Eric Schmidt thing is an entirely different conversation. But, like, yeah, there's very little indication that Google has been good on this, and their general counsel, David Drummond, was one of those very powerful Google men who seemed to think that it was fine for him to just take whatever he wanted from the employee pool. If you know, and and it was a few months ago that a former um, a woman who worked in under Drummond in the legal office of Google wrote this post on Medium that people should go and read, just documenting her relationship. With Drummond, and it was horrifying. Like they went they having a, a baby kid, together, yeah. and just go and read it. I mean, she alleges some really horrific and horrendous behavior, and you know she was retaliated against at work. And then he went on to date someone else at work too. There's clearly a big problem there, and Google really didn't respond to that until this week when the company said, "Okay, fine, maybe we have a problem. We're going to hire Cravath." you know, fancy law firm to investigate what's going on here. Because there's also this story in the Times about how the company paid um, Android founder Andy Rubin. Andy Rubin like $80 million, even though he had these sexual harassment complaints against him, they paid him $80 million to, to be to be fired. And st- everyone gets paid millions of dollars in these cases, it seems like, to go away, which is nice. I would like that. <laughs> Still not as good as Adam Newman. Although he has the same... You know, he has sexual... Um, yeah, he's a lawsuit pending now, pen- a pregnancy yeah. discrimination. Pregnancy that's right, that's that was, right. It was his chief of staff. Mm-hmm. It was a woman who got pregnant, and then she, he was like, he called it her holiday. <laughs> I wish that everyone could see the Emily eye rolls, because the Emily eye rolls are kind of the best part of so recording awful. Slate Money. Yeah, we should do it, Jeff. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I was saying to you guys before we started taping that a high-up woman in the tech industry who was speaking off the record yesterday, was saying to the group of us that um, corporate America is doing a better job handling Me Too or in the 
post Me Too era, better whatever. Better than who? Better than she made the comparison to like healthcare workers working in homes, stuff like that. Like workers who aren't within like a big corporate umbrella, uh, you know, nurse, you know, I don't know. Yeah, um, that's kind of an, yeah, but I, I you could maybe make the argument that you know I, I think the what everybody thinks of is Trump, right? That, you know, we have this president, you know, who who is clearly has all of these allegations against him. And in government, there historically are all these problems. And although, yes, we've seen some men get tossed out and a woman get um, tossed out as a result of Me Too, it does seem like we're seeing a much faster but, Okay, so in, let's talk briefly yeah. about this Katie Hill thing. Compared and, to politics, corporate see, America right. is, is throwing out people for abusing power faster than in politics. I mean, there was the comedian senator guy. Franken, Al yeah. Franken. Al Franken. Mm-hmm. I mean, there does seem to be this weird sort of growing consensus that the Al Franken defenestration was too fast and a mistake. Yeah. I mean, that's Al Franken's opinion. But I'm seeing that more and more. I'm seeing people change their mind on that one. Mm, Yeah. But Emily, just let's, because we're tying in every conceivable news story (laughs) here, like the the other big consensual sexual relationship which led to a resignation this week was Katie Hill, the Democratic Congresswoman. The Democratic Congresswoman. And that was like a revenge porn state thing. It was very nasty. Yeah. And is that. Just a completely separate thing, or is that what your like tech executive was comparing corporate America to? I think it's similar to what's happening in corporate America, whereas the um, Congress passed new rules, and you know, um, Congresswomen and men aren't allowed to have uh, relationships, romantic relationships with staffers. And it was alleged that Katie Hill had a, a relationship with a staffer, though she denied it. She only she admitted to having a relationship with a campaign staffer, which is technically okay, but still wound up stepping down. Also because she didn't want any more, you know, revenge porn pictures coming to light any anymore. Right. I think as well. Um, but I think it's along the spectrum of but a campaign the world. Stuffer is still a stuffer. Yeah, I mean, I think it's along the spectrum now that we're living in a new kind of world where the rules are are tightened up and people like Steve. Easterbrook, you know, have to step down or Brian from Intel has to step down. You know, I think things have changed a little bit. So we see these we do see these examples, but things aren't perfect because we still have, you know, Trump in the White House. We still have David Drummond at Google. I mean, do we think that Cravath is going to succeed in getting him tossed out? I mean, I mean, obviously, yeah, things aren't going to change <laughs> super quickly, but I, I, at least we can say it, it, there's so many horrible things going on right now that to say like one thing is moving slightly in a better direction, yeah. I'll, I'll take that. So so we're applauding McDonald's for this. Uh, that's the thing. We, we really don't know enough to yeah. applaud. Like, we don't know the story. It's been covered up, right? I mean, they say it's consensual, but like Matt Lauer also says right, everyone, his affair was consensual and the says, woman says he raped her. So like yeah, everyone says it's consensual. Like that, that's the thing about these delusional men. They're all convinced <laughs> that these women are desperately in love with them, even just, you know, because they're delusional. And so you can't necessarily take their word for it. Right. I would love some enterprising fast food reporter to give me the inside scoop. Because also, I think the next day after Easterbrook uh, resigned or was he was fired, but without cause that allows him to get this like massive uh, payout. But um, the day after the HR, the guy in charge of HR also yeah. resigns. But we don't know why. Hmm. But they, they claim it's not related. But again, hmm. we really don't Seems know. Suspicious, but yeah. We don't know. Hello, I'm Emmy Harper. 
On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Okay, let's talk about sleep because I have had very little of it because I was in Lisbon and we're going to talk a little bit about why I was in Lisbon. But before we talk about why I was in Lisbon, mm. can I just take the opportunity to do the classic first world problem thing of complaining about traveling east, which is something which as I get old and decrepit, I hate more and more and I cope with worse and worse. And it really does screw up your circadian cycles. And it's becoming more and more understood, as Emily's former boss, Ariana Huffington, would love to tell us about, that it that is it's deeply harmful in a bunch of ways. It's not just it doesn't just hurt your cognition, it hurts your health, it makes you you know, gain weight. And what's the news hook here? The news hook is a story that Austin Frack wrote in the New York Times, where he writes about a study that showed better sleep equals higher pay. And it's this really interesting piece um, about this uh, study that was in the, the Review of Economics and Statistics. And um, what they did was compare cities that are in the same time zones but are so far apart that sunset is different. Right. So, um, for example, Boston and Ann Arbor, Michigan are in the same time zone, but the sun sets earlier in Boston. Right. And when the sun sets earlier, people get more sleep. Huh. So the economists that did the study, I believe it's economists, but you have to check. They concluded or the data showed that in the places where the sun sets earlier and people get more sleep, they make more money. And it's, it's everyone collectively making more money. So it's not like if you, Felix, decide to finally stop being such a jet setter and traveling east and get more sleep, you will make more money. It, like it's, it's a, like a 
it's a collective this is this phenomenon. is super interesting to me the idea is that if you're on like the western <laughs> edge of a time zone uh-huh, and, exactly. and the days stretch on much longer then that's actually bad economically yeah bad for and productivity the th- and the thing which i can't stop thinking about here is basically iberia not just lisbon but the entire iberian peninsula for pretty good economic reasons it's basically on the same time zone as the rest of europe despite being way to the west of the rest of europe and that's one of the reasons why they you know eat dinner at 10 o'clock and that kind of thing and they deal with it historically and they still but less so now but they still very much do deal with this by inventing the siesta like they have to catch up on sleep in the middle of the day is the only way they can do it. And obviously that's not great for economic productivity. Mm-hmm. And they are poor compared to the rest of Europe. Maybe the time zone is part of that. Anna looks so skeptical. I just don't buy any of this. I, 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 <laughs> like I, I, these studies, I'm always just like, there are so many other factors. Like, I don't know, being in the state of Massachusetts versus being in the state <laughs> right, of Michigan. You know what I mean? Course. Like, So it's an, it's an interesting intellectual exercise, but I kind of don't buy it at all. Um, but there's other stuff like we know that when kids um, start the school day later, it's it's better for their learning. Yeah. And, um, and because also, they get to sleep more. It also well, means also less they... car accidents, apparently, that leads to uh, yeah reduced car crashes if you start the school day and, later. And just changing the clocks twice a year causes a whole bunch of deaths and car crashes because you get that little baby one hour jet lag. Mm-hmm. And one hour of jet lag is not a lot of jet lag, but it's still jet lag. And you get jet lag without even... Getting on a plane, it's the worst of all worlds. I mean, I have no doubt that sleep and productivity are linked. I'm sure they're linked. I just think that it's probably small. (laughs) Like, I think if you're thinking of all, like I was reading this this article and and if you're thinking of like the the major health issues that are, you know, facing Americans, it's like sleep is, the actual impact is kind of marginal compared to a lot of other things. I don't think this is, I don't think this is something which, is the major health issues facing Americans so much as it's a huge understudied health issue facing basically everyone in the urban world since the invention of the light bulb. You know, it's like it's a big thing. And as we as as we now carry light bulbs in our pockets and stare at them at, until, you know, one thirty in the morning going down TikTok holes, not that I've ever done that or anything. Like it it gets worse and worse. And I think that it's very easy to underestimate the deleterious effects of this just because it is so omnipresent. No, I mean I agree with you that I think a lot of people don't get enough sleep. I think that the amount of television and now the amount of just overall screen time I think is almost certainly making that worse. I just think that some of the grand conclusions from some of these studies, I don't really buy because I think there's kind of, again, there are just so many different factors you'd have to work in. Right. You're saying it's hard to isolate. I mean, the the authors of the study say um, more sleep can increase earnings by 1.1%, which isn't actually quite very drastic yeah. and at it's all. Also, I thought it was odd, kind of interesting, too, because one of the things you often hear is that people who are higher paid or people who have, you know, kind of the quote unquote more demanding jobs tend to sleep less. You do hear that. Right? And, they men- and he mentions that in the piece. Yeah. That people- <laughs> but I mean, I wonder if if that's true. And I feel like there's a lot of like, um, like bragging on yeah. from like high powered kind of executives that they wake up at 430 in the morning and stuff like that. They're, I just, yeah, I that mean, I don't like, actually yeah, buy. Exactly. There's that legendary then- business insider listicle which people love to hate on every every time it comes around with like you know the 
10 things that successful people right. do before breakfast. And you're like, no, like there's no one who does 10 things. Before oh, yeah. Breakfast. At HuffPost, we, we made fun of that years ago by doing um, like 10 things successful people did before they were born. And we're like, <laughs> average parents. <laughs> um, anyway, but um, what I was going to say is the real people that aren't getting enough sleep are like lower income workers who have like crazy schedules, inconsistent schedules that can't have consistent sleep, I think. Yeah, even Working though statistically parents. speak, yeah, it's the statistics are weird on this. And I, and I guess this is where I just come down where it's like, I think you could, we can play like my white paper versus your white paper here. I just think, but I think overall, it's good to say that sleep is something that we should focus <laughs> on and sleep is something we should encourage. I just don't think it's responsible for the lack of productivity in Iberia. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I do think that there's on, on some level, I don't know. Certain jobs which re require long hours wind up selecting for the people who can perform at a high level without with on with very little sleep. Mm -hmm. There is, I think, it's about five, four or five percent of the population who really genuinely only need like four or five hours mm -hmm. a night, and those four or five percent of the population, you know, might not be any smarter, but because they have this weird genetic, you know, disease or, or abnormality, let's call it, they get to be overrepresented in executive ranks for precisely this reason. And I think certainly, you know, the kind of international jet setting management consultant types, I think it's really hard to do those jobs well unless you have that abnormality. I don't know. Again, I question. There was a study recently where it was like it was um, a study of consultants who were saying they worked 80 hours a week but were just lying. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think that happens more than you would think, where right, people claim to be working well, this really is, hard. Yeah. The question is, like, if if you're if you're traveling, and you know, I I just did this. You know, I was in Portugal for a week, and was I quote unquote working the whole time? Like, no, you know. <laughs> but you're out. You're on the road. You're always in that kind of working context. You always have stuff you're trying to catch up on. You always you always feel like you're in this kind of weird fog, and you. You know, it wasn't like I was on holiday, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, and another thing I would say, um, like doctors, I think the medical profession has really learned over the past decade or so that you have to have more sleep because yeah. doctors used to, it was punishing. Residents were made to yeah, work 24 so hour shifts and they find that sleepy, do sleep deprived <laughs> doctors make more mistakes. Like that turns, is, out. turns out bad idea. Like, um, yeah. so I think sleep, I don't know. I think I, I buy this study that places that people get more sleep have higher productivity. It just. Yeah. Uh, even, even if you can quibble with any one paper or the methodology thereof, I think the intuition is is absolutely correct. And, and like, we do have this evidence from doctors and students. Test scores are lower when they get less sleep. And personally, I know, like, when I came back to work from maternity leave and my baby wasn't sleeping, like, I was not a coherent person back then. Like, you're barely, like, holding it together when you don't get enough sleep. So, I don't know. Is that intuitive? I think it's real. It's real. <laughs> So, yeah, I was in Lisbon for this thing called Web Summit, which has been going on for quite a while now. It started in Dublin, and then it moved to Lisbon, and it just gets bigger and bigger. It's this big European tech business conference. And it was quite terrifying. I tried to avoid big conferences as much as I can. I, 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 on some level, I kind of in the back of my head knew that it was big, but there's a big difference between knowing that a conference is big and then stepping out on stage in front of a literal, like the largest indoor arena in Portugal, which fits 20,000 people and like do a panel discussion with like, 
neobanks. And it was it's something I've never done before. But what you realize when you're in that context and you see these enormous crowds, like literally tens of thousands of people, I think the total attendance was over 70,000. What I realized was that basically everyone there was either trying to raise money in the private markets or was in the business of handing out money in the private markets. They they were like GPs or LPs of late venture capitalists and that kind of thing. So it the, the, the whole thing, and partly because, and it kind of made sense to me when I thought about it that way, because private markets are more opaque than public markets and they rely more on who you know and personal connections in the way that all opaque markets do. And so the need for conferences like this goes up because that's how private market markets work. And if you hang out backstage at this kind of conference, and I mean, literally the backstage of this conference was an order of magnitude bigger than most conferences I go to. Um, but you hang out backstage at this conference and it's, it's people saying, oh, do you know this person? You know, oh, yeah, I used to work with this person. I used to work with that person. Everyone knows everyone. It's, it's the only other place that I have experienced that is in the art world, which is an equally opaque market. And that was super interesting to me. So you And you wrote a piece in Axios basically saying that private markets are the new thing and public markets are the bad? They're no, dying? Or, I, mean, I mean, no, not, not quite. Public markets are doing great. You know, with the U.S. stock market is an all-time high. The European stock market is very close to all-time highs. It's been surging. It's been very good this year. We've had a whole bunch of IPOs. It's very easy to lose perspective here. Like, people were overawed by the amount of, quote-unquote, dry powder in the venture capital industry. It's like over $100 billion right now, the amount of cash that's just waiting to be put to work. And they're like, this is amazing. Just look at all of the companies that can be funded with this $100 billion. I mean, $100 billion, that's how much cash Apple has. Right, right. You know? So, like, public markets are still so much bigger and so much more important. No one is going to replace them, but private markets are becoming more liquid Um, They're becoming more transparent. They're still opaque, but they're less opaque than they used to be. And they are beginning to come around to like, I think what I think the big change, which I've got my head around, is that it used to be like rich people, um, high net worth individuals would put a bunch of money into a venture capital fund and say, like, I hope I make lots of money this way. And that's much less common certainly in terms of like just sheer weight of money now than much more permanent capital from like pension funds which won't need to start paying out for another 30 years or sovereign wealth funds or that kind of stuff who and the rich people wanted their money back in five to ten years and the permanent capital people like they don't actually want their money back if you can keep those returns going at you know double digit rates for 30 or 40 years they they would love that so what you're seeing is these stakes starting to change hands and and the you know someone will invest uh, for an early stage stake in a private company and then they'll sell that stake to like a late stage fund and then that late stage fund will will sell that stake to SoftBank or the whole thing will get taken over by a private equity fund and private equity of course is 10 times bigger than venture capital so like this idea that companies can just stay private more or less indefinitely without 
you know, even when they're funded by people who need an exit, like it's now becoming possible in the way that I don't think was possible in the past. A lot of what we've seen in the growth of this, like this period of growth in the private markets, which has been enormous, it hasn't yet gone through a crisis. Right. And I think that that's always something to consider because everything always looks great until and everyone thinks it's fine until it's not. And we don't know what private markets of this size, how they react in a crisis. I guess that's what it seems troubling is there's lots of benefits to having public companies because you have a little more insight. Like you say, there's more transparency. You kind of know what they're doing. You can see results. And 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 when companies go public, as we saw with WeWork, of course, but with the other IPOs, right, over the past year is that like private markets are... They might have got ahead of themselves. They're a little dumb, it seems yeah, to like me. Yeah, like if you look at the share <laughs> price, I mean, yeah. the, the share price of Uber is now significantly below where it was five years ago, mm-hmm. like three funding rounds before it went public. A lot of other big unicorn share prices are going down and to the right, including, you know, Slack and Lyft and a whole bunch of others. WeWork, of course, never went public at all. Um, so it does look like the public market price discovery is is better. It, it's at least let's just say <laughs> conflicting with public with private markets, right? right? Whether that's better or not, I don't know. Like, is it good for Uber to have a low share price? No, probably not. Like, if it had stayed private, on the one hand, it wouldn't have been able to raise eight billion dollars in equity capital by going public. Um, but on the other hand, it could have just waited until it found people who are willing to pay more money per share and then only sold at that rate. So it's like, which is the fantasy? Is the fantasy the, the company that stays private and doesn't have to deal with the reality yeah. of like profit, yeah. making a profit? Or is the fantasy... Well, I mean, they only have to worry... I mean, like, one of the interesting things to me is the private companies which are profitable. Mm. And, on you know, they don't need to go public because they don't need new capital, right? And so I was talking to one guy who's invested in in Fortnite, you know, the, mm-hmm. the game maker. Like, that's just a cash cow. Mm-hmm. And on some level, like, you can just exit from that by receiving the dividends from the profits. Like, why even go public at that point? Right. So I guess where you have to worry is the companies like Uber or WeWork that weren't profitable that are just sucking up all this private investment money but are kind of phony baloney. Yeah, and I mean, and, and yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's a coin to Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and also because you know you do have a you have more competition in you know in in private equity as well. You know you you have all of these all of these firms, and so what we've seen is that as you know kind of volumes of private equity deals have risen, and part of the reason they've risen is because when there's competition, people often then pay more for the deals, right? So then as that like that multiple increases, you just end up people paying more and more and more. And but don't, don't you see that in public markets as well, with people putting more and more money into stocks and th- therefore the stock market rise, rises? It's just the same thing that we often see with, you know, quote unquote flows. It's just... It's true. It's just that when you're talking about private markets, there is a lot less transparency. And that when the markets are super, super, super tiny, eh, you know, who really cares? As they start to become a little bigger, it's just a concern. And there's value in... For, for the public and having public companies, because you can kind of you could like Steve Easterbrook at McDonald's, if McDonald's wasn't public, would they have taken the step to get rid of him? Like it is uh, almost companies we, we are just, held more accountable right. when they're public. We just had uh, a few months ago the last the, the 500th company in the S&P 500, basically the, the last company in the S&P 500 with an all male board appointed a woman to the board. Like now every single S&P 500 company has at least one woman on mm-hmm. the board. You know, we are getting to 
board equality far too slowly, or gender equality on boards far too slowly, but we are getting there. We are moving in that direction. In private companies, it is the norm to have all-male boards. Like I work for a private company which has an all-male board. Um, most private companies, certainly most private tech companies, have all-male boards. And there is much less pressure on them to change that. Yeah, sunshine is the best disinfectant, as they say. I mean, it, it really is a benefit to us human people, to everyone, <laughs> for companies to be public, I think. I think, And also just the fact that it's public, that anyone can invest in it, is mm-hmm, right. democratic on some level. Yeah, democratic. So now, this I is don't, an I don't undemocratic believe, trend. I don't believe that access to venture capital is the reason why rich people people get richer you know i think that honestly if they just invested in an s&p index fund they would do just as well Uh but there is this belief and it is certainly true that some rich people have got very rich doing that and i would actually probably i agree with you and i think it's probably almost the opposite which is that the reason there is so much money going into all of these funds is because of frankly income inequality and a lot of other things right there's so much capital trying to find a home so i think it's it's almost the reverse (laughs) Let's have a numbers round. Um, Emily, do you have a number? I do. What's your number? 0.44. Okay. That is the percentage point so difference. 0.44% or 44%? 0.44 percentage points. Oh, 0.44 percentage points. 0.44 percentage points. Okay. This is from a piece I read in The Atlantic by friend of the pod, Annie Lowry, about inflation and how low-income Americans face a higher rate of inflation on consumer goods than high-income Americans. I thought it was so interesting. So low-income families experience an annual rate of inflation that is 0.44 points higher than high-income families. And part of the reason is because there is, because we are such an unequal society at this point, that there's more um, going on in terms of price competition for goods at the higher end. So the example she used in the piece was beer, like because there's been this explosion in like craft brews and like delicious beers. There's more price competition up there um, versus down at the bottom where things have kind of stagnated, like no one's making like the new Lowenbrow or whatever, the new Coors Light. So um, and that's just like one example. And of course, it's more expensive to buy the craft beer stuff than the the cheap beer stuff. But the rate of inflation for the products that um, rich people buy is lower than the products that poor people buy. And it's just sort of like this like stealth way of looking at things that I never really thought about that much before. That was really interesting. My I have a I have a number which is um sixty percent, which is related to our private market discussion. I, I was saying how you want liquidity and one of the things you want in a public market or even a private market in order to get liquidity is lots of bidders. 60% is the value of the Sotheby's evening sale this month, which is backed by guarantees. Guarantees are basically a way for what looks like a public auction where everyone is fighting against each other to make sure that the work of art goes to the highest bidder and basically turn that ostensibly public auction into a private sale where one person just sells a work of art to another sale and no one one else even bids. And it's more and more common in the auction world to the point where now now 60% of the value of the evening sale is guaranteed and it will probably be higher than that by the time the sale actually happens. So that's 
an example of a private market which is actually becoming less liquid hmm. rather than more liquid? So my number is $6.5 billion, and that is SoftBank's operating loss. But that was smaller than its operating profit a quarter earlier. <laughs> I don't really care. There are two reasons that I brought this up. One, because if you have not seen SoftBank's slide deck, you need to Google it immediately because it's amazing. It includes the hypothetical EBITDA which is my, my personal favorite. And, and you should not just stop there. You should look at SoftBank's past slide decks. They're absolutely amazing. Like there's one where there's a pie chart that part of it just is loneliness. What? I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm not what? making this up. Uh, are, we, are we long loneliness or short loneliness? <laughs> I think it was supposed to be that. Like there is so much loneliness in Japan. SoftBank will stop this. It's, it's well, that was part what? of Adam Newman's thing, right? That was how Adam Newman and Masterson like bonded was because he was like we are living in these bubbles of loneliness and then everyone's going to go into WeWorks and make friends and they're going to live in we lives and no one who lives in a we live will ever be lonely and Master was like wow you're a visionary here have four billion dollars <laughs> yes and so this is the other reason I brought this up because like can I do a correction from something for two weeks ago okay because this has been eating me up inside Aww. for two weeks <laughs> that so I don't know how I managed to like just say it was completely wrong. So we were when we were talking about the consolidated balance sheets between SoftBank and WeWork, if WeWork had become a subsidiary of SoftBank, what I was trying to say was that when you become a subsidiary, things become much more complicated legally. And there's the possibility that the liabilities could be of WeWork could be considered part of SoftBank's liability. It's not a legal guarantee, but it becomes a lot more complicated. And also, there actually can be legal issues. It's not always likely, but it's possible. And then specifically in the case of WeWork, it's really complicated because SoftBank has already bailed them out. So then there's this concern that if they had actually been brought onto the balance sheet, creditors in credit ratings agencies would have kind of viewed those as SoftBank's liability. So this is what I was trying to say. And I don't know how I said what I did, but I sounded like an idiot. And I'm not even joking. I was like the next day in tears with my friends. Like, everybody's going to think I'm stupid. So just wanted to make that clear. Okay. No one thinks Anna's stupid. We, we don't think Anna's stupid. But they we, stand for you. They send in emails all the time. It's true. Except for the people who say I should be fired. Yeah, but everyone else is like, Anna Shemansky, <laughs> she's so amazing. I feel um, like I see those all the time. It's true. We get the emails. Um, do do keep them coming. If if Anna makes a mistake, be nice to her because we don't <laughs> want to, to end up in tears. The email is slatemoney at slate.com. I end up in tears on a regular basis, but mostly when I'm sleep deprived. So my my resolution is to try and sleep more. I think this is this is gonna be good. Our producer this week is Phil Circus. <laughs> According to June Thomas, who looks like my producer this week, it's actually not June Thomas, it's Phil Circus. So many thanks to Phil Circus and June Thomas for helping to throw this show together in the absence of Jessamine Molly, who's in uh, Nairobi, I believe. Really? So oh. welcome her back next week from Nairobi. And we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. Hey. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.